Good morning. What a sight for sore eyes everybody is. I can't tell if you're all going to be laughing at me this morning or smiling at me, but I hope that you're smiling. But since I'm not going to be able to tell the difference, I won't be telling too many, too many jokes. If you're visiting with us, we're definitely honored to have you in our crowd this morning. As you're about to find out, I'm not the regular evangelist here. That honor belongs to Sean Jeffries, so if you want to hear a real sermon, please come back in a week, and uh, you'll get to hear Sean, who does such a great job for us here. About a year ago, I was at work, and I was helping participate in some hiring of some new positions that we were creating. And I was with some colleagues, and we were discussing interview questions that we like. And we kind of went around and talked about a few things that we like to ask people, some things that we don't like. And it led me to tell them about my favorite interview question. And my favorite interview question is, tell me something you believe to be true that very few people agree with you on. And it's my favorite interview question because it's very difficult because a good answer requires you to say something that the person across from you does not agree with you on. And it's very difficult and uncomfortable for people to say this. But what makes it so incredible, I think, is a good answer requires courage. For example, a bad answer might be, I believe our schools are messed up. That's not necessarily controversial. Everybody, or most people, might agree with you on that. But conversely, the answer that I believe the world is flat is also very bad, because while most people don't agree with you on that, it's not true whatsoever. And so you can see it's hard to find the intersection between something that's both contrarian and also right. And that's what makes it such an interesting question to ask, I think. And ultimately, the reason why I think it's worth asking is courage is in shorter supply than genius in today's world. And it takes a lot of courage to say something that you know somebody, especially that has the power to hire or not hire you, might not want to hear. But we're not going to be doing any interview questions this morning. And I won't ask for any answers afterwards, but if you want some interesting ones, find me afterwards. The person that I want to talk about this morning is somebody that I think had great courage and showed great courage throughout their life and at a very difficult time in their life. And that's why I tell you that story. If you turn over in your book or in your Bible to Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1, as we heard just a minute ago, uh, we got introduced to Job, who was a man from the land of Uz, God-fearing man, very blessed man, very rich man, in verses 1 through 3. But I want to start reading in verses 6 through 8, and I want to point out a couple of things throughout the first several chapters about Job. Starting verse 6 here, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came to them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to about Job is that the Lord brags on Job. The Lord brags on Job here in verse 8. And he goes so far as to say that there is not another man like him on earth. Now there's a number of different characters throughout the Bible that I believe the Lord brags on and, and, and lifts up. But I couldn't find an example of another character to which the Lord gives such high praise. David is called a man after God's own heart. Moses was called a mighty man. 
and we see both of those people chronicled in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, and there's others throughout the New and Old Testament. But I couldn't find another example where he is called the most righteous man. And here, and the reason I think that's significant for us is because it shows that when we serve God and we keep his commandments, he's proud of us. I think often as Christians, it can be really hard for us to comprehend that sometimes when we know we are called to live such a difficult life in a world that's so dark. And I think from time to time, we can become only focused on what is expected of us and forget the fact that God, our heavenly creator, is proud of us. We don't stop to appreciate the fact that just as our earthly fathers praise us when we do things and we uh, respect them, our Heavenly Father does the same thing for us. And it's so important for us to remember because when we live in a world that is constantly surrounded by sin and darkness, if we forget that, we might begin to feel alone. We might begin to feel like God isn't noticing the toiling and the hard work that we're putting in to be the kind of people that he would have us to be. Another thing that I see, if we continue on here, is that the Lord grants the devil the ability to test Job. And over the course of the rest of the first chapter, we see the devil cause some of the most extreme pain on anybody that anyone could imagine in their life. And all in a very short span of time. We see all of his possessions, servants, animals taken from him by outside tribes. We see his whole family, except for his wife, killed. And in verse 20, we see that the first thing that Job does is he worships. The first thing that he does is he worships. He tears his robe and falls to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in Job's shoes, I can't say that that would be the first action that I would have. I hope that it would be, but I don't know. But in verse 20, that's what we see. And in verse 22, we see that through all of this, Job did not sin or blame God. And in a world like ours, where it's so fashionable to blame God for bad things that happen in our life, this is not a popular verse, I think. Our world today seems to find all sorts of reasons why God is at fault for the troubles we face, whether it's a job we've lost, or war, not having world peace, coronavirus, you name it. We love to blame God as a world. But that's not what Job did. He didn't blame God for his problems here. And as we continue on in chapter 2, we see once again a conversation between Satan and the Lord. And in verse 3, we see the Lord again brag on Job and say, There is no one like him on earth. Now, we have the benefit of having the curtain pulled back here, but if I was Job, I would say, Please, God, <laughs> ease up on me a minute. Don't, don't think too highly of me. But we see Satan here once again try to convince God that he can get Job to turn on him if he can only inflict some more pain on him. And here we see the devil take Job's health from him, and he inflicts great big sore boils all over his body, to the point where in verse 12, it says that his friends did not even recognize him. And it's at this point that Job spends the whole next chapter lamenting his existence and really hating his life, to the point that he says he wishes he was never born. And when you think about the amount of physical and emotional pain the man has gone through at this point, I can't blame him either. And there's some really descriptive language that he uses, and the whole book of, or the whole chapter of chapter three is really dedicated to um, Job making this sentiment known. He says that he wishes um, he was a, a miscarriage even, or that he was discarded and never, never even born. 
Through all this, though, Job shows an immense amount of faith. And he details later on in verse, or chapter 7 even more pain that he's encountered, particularly in verses 17 through 21. I want to read that for us here. Job chapter 7, verses 17 through 21. What is man that you magnify him, and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? And here we see Job asking God what he has done to deserve the pain that he's suffering. He asked God if he sinned here in verse 21, and even asked God why he has not pardoned his transgression if he has sinned. Why has he not taken away Job's iniquity? And I think it's something that I would probably feel, feel like saying as well if I were in Job's situation. And I think you would as well. Why is it that I'd be made to suffer? God, don't you love me? After, uh, after this year, we're introduced to Job's friends at the end of chapter 2. If you turn back a few pages. And we hear about the first friend of his in chapter 4. And he gives his opinion on Job's suffering. And most of the rest of the book, in fact is uh, chronicled about this back-and-forth debate between why Job is in the situation that he's in. And as you know, his friends begin to blame Job for the suffering that he's going through, and they ask him, what sin have you committed, Job, to deserve this? What have you done? Why have you, why have you uh, brought this reproach upon your head? And over the next 30-some chapters, uh, those, that debate is waged. And often I think in this time in Job's suffering, it's highlighted how poor his friends were and how not much of a relief they were to him. But I think we should be careful. As I was reading these first few chapters again where Job and his friends are going back and forth, my initial thoughts were, really, Job, these are the kind of people that you call friends that you would want to associate with? These are the people that you lean on for, for understanding and for support? But I think that's a little strong because Job, as wise as he was and as wise as he's told, I'm sure had initial reason for befriending these people. These were not the only three people left on the earth. These were not the only three people that he had to pick from. And when I think about that, I think that for Job, the sad thing wasn't just that these people were not on his side, but rather that he knew his friends or he didn't really know his friends uh, when he really needed them. He thought he knew them. But in reality, he didn't. he didn't. And I think all of us at one point in our lives have probably gone through something difficult when we call on friends that we expect to help us and we might face a similar uh, response, maybe not as dramatic as Job's example here, but where we're not getting the comfort or the help that we're looking for. I certainly feel for Job here. And I think that's the testament to having Christian friends. Our earthly friends, while they might be good people, and we've talked about this at length before, don't share the same bond, the same goal as our Christian friends here, and something that we should hold on to very dearly. As I look at Job's story here, there's, there's a lot of different applications that I think we could draw, um, and there's many different things that we could take away from this book. But I want to look at four specific things when I look at Job's story that I take away in my own life. And then we'll conclude this morning. The first thing that I want to look at is when we are going through struggles, and I think we're feeling as if we're suffering for no reason, 
I think that we might be missing an opportunity uh, that God might be placing us in here. God may be saying, have you considered my servant Mitch or my servant Michelle, my servant Sean? And there's a number of times where we're not able to see that in the moment when we're suffering. Instead of automatically viewing our, our suffering as punishment, which is tempting to do, I think we ought to look at it as an opportunity to be on display for God. It's only natural when we're going through hard times to question the source of our suffering. And as we see other examples in the Bible where men like David, Solomon, Saul and Paul all question their suffering, we see Job do the same here throughout this book. But I caution us against viewing trials or suffering in our life as strictly punishment, which can lead us down a road of blaming God, as I mentioned earlier, and in times like this can be very easy to do. And if we do that, we'll miss the opportunity to grow in ways that we might not be able to understand at the moment. But also, when I think about what we can learn from Job, we see that we can't let our struggles define us. When you look at Job and the pain that he endured and the suffering that he had to go through, if anyone had an excuse to be bitter towards God, it was Job. If anyone had an excuse to act the way they wanted to act or live the life they wanted to live, it was Job. If anyone could have been resentful or bitter, it was Job. Someone who had all their possessions taken, their family killed, their wife in support telling them to curse God and die. Job had reason to be that way. And we could understand how someone could choose that path going through that suffering, even though it wouldn't be right. You know those people that are angry all the time in the world today, just to have something to be angry about, who don't seem to be happy unless they're miserable, who only focus on how dreary and depressing their life is? There's always a reason for us to be upset as Christians. In today's world where fornication, adultery, lying, gossiping, virtually every sin under the sun is glorified and lifted up and praised, this world can bring us to our knees if we allow it and if we only focus on those things. But I can't help but think of Paul's words in the book of Galatians, Galatians 6, in verses 9 through 10, where he tells the Christians they are not to lose heart in doing good. For in due time they will reap, they do not grow weary. And also in Hebrews chapter 12, where we're told to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and fix our eyes on Jesus and run with endurance the race set before us. Verse 3 says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I pulled these two passages in Hebrews and Galatians out because I think it's easy if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus while we're running this race in life to lose our focus. It's going to be easy to lose heart if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And if you've ever done any long-distance running, you know that in order to mentally endure till the end, you need to have something to focus on. Whether that's a cold drink or a finish line, just being done, a weight loss goal, something in mind keeps your mind focused and fixed towards your end goal. And if our mind as we go through life isn't fixed on Jesus, it'll be hard to endure towards the end goal of heaven. But thirdly, I think about another lesson from Job's story, and that no matter how much suffering we have to go through here on earth, it does not give us the right to sin. The devil tried to use Job's suffering against him 
in order to get him to sin. And he does the same thing to us today. Whether it's our health, losing our friends, our jobs, our family, the devil's actively and always looking for ways to turn suffering against us. One of the best examples of this in the New Testament is the suffering we see Paul endure in 2 Corinthians 12 when he describes his thorn in the flesh. In verse 7, Paul tells the Corinthians that for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. I wanted to take a look at this passage because unlike Job's trial, Paul's trial detailed here was not one that was used to see if he would endure suffering, but it was to keep him from exalting himself. And I think in our own life, when we are faced with a trial, we need to recognize that it might just be an opportunity that God is using to change and perfect us in our faith, which is different from what we see Job going through. Despite Satan's intentions to destroy Paul with this thorn in the flesh, God uses this to humble him and to make him all that he can be, to make him a better servant, a better Christian, and more righteous in his kingdom. And the same can be said for us today. But make no mistake, Paul had to be the one to accept this and to carry this burden and realize that it was for his betterment. Like Job, Paul recognized that we have to accept both good times and bad times from God, and using them as an excuse and an opportunity to sin is missing the opportunity for us to grow. And there are a number of other examples throughout the New Testament that highlight the inevitable suffering that we're going to have to endure as Christians. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be prosecuted or persecuted. John 15 verse 18 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. But we know if we hold fast to him, no matter what trials we encounter, we'll not be separated from the love of God, which we see in Romans 8, verse 38 through 39. Romans 8, verse 38 through 39, which says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a comforting passage, especially in times like right now. Finally, the last thing I want to take away from this story is that we need to watch how we determine success. No matter how hard we work in this life, we're not always going to pass the test, get the job, get the promotion, make that life-changing sale, or make that big salary and that big payday. We see in Job's case that he was a very wealthy man, and he had lots of possessions in the beginning. And even at the end of his testing, we see that God doubles all that he had originally at the end of chapter 42. But it would be wrong for us to expect, I think, earthly treasures when we go through trials here on earth. And in today's world where we measure success by net worth, followers, or how many toys we have in the garage, that would be the wrong message to take here. If we turn over to Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, Luke 12, 15 through 21, we see Jesus tell a parable about a rich man, about a rich man who had a plentiful harvest, and when he needed more room to store his crops, he tore down his smaller barns and built bigger ones. And he said to himself, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 
And of course, we see that God calls him a fool here because the treasures that he was more concerned with were the treasures on earth versus his treasures in heaven. I can't help but remind myself of a game I used to like playing as a child, the game of Monopoly. And if you ever played Monopoly, it's a very long game, especially if you have four plus players. And I remember very vividly after you've got all the properties and after you've built hotels on every place and houses on every street, the same thing always happened. The same thing always happened. It all went back in the box at the end of the day. It all went back in the box. And at the end of our lives, God's going to take everything that he's created here and he's going to put them back in the box. It's not just our earthly treasures that we have to watch. Pride is another thing that I think we can measure success by. Proverbs 11, verse 12 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. And in chapter 16 of that same, of that same book, in verse 18, he says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And in the end, it's really all monopoly money, isn't it? Whether or not it's pride, fame, fortune, you name it. They're all just trinkets on a board game that God's created, and we're not going to take any of them with us. Thank you for your attention this morning. You've all listened very well. If you're visiting with us, uh, once again, it's been an honor to have you with us. Uh, if you're here this morning and you'd like to be a Christian and you're not, we'd love nothing more than to baptize you if you'd like to make that step. If you've done that in the past, but you've committed sin and you'd like to come forward asking for the prayers of the congregation or make public confession and ask for the prayers of the members here, we're happy to do that with you as well. Whatever you need, please come as we stand and as we sing.